The head of the Department of Post-Mortem Communications gave a little sigh. I thought as much. We were part of the scheme of things. Light and dark, night and day, sweet and sour, good and evil, within acceptable college statutes. It just helps if you can have sensible and reliable people on both sides. But I'm glad that we've been able to be of assistance. We don't see many people down here. Well, not people as such. This time Glenda walked along the corridor. Orc, she thought. A thing that just kills. Every time she blinked, the image came back to her. The teeth and claws of a creature in full leap, seen, as far as one could tell, by whoever it was it was leaping at. Fighters you couldn't stop. And Nut had been killed, according to Trev, and then sort of became unkilled again before going back to Unseen University and eating all the pies. There was an awfully big gap in all this, but men with whips filled it. You can't have something that just fights, she thought. It has to do other things as well. And Nut isn't any stranger than most of the people you see around these days. It's not a lot to go on, though. But then again, the evil emperor was a sorcerer. Everyone knew that. Everyone knows you can't help how you're made. Well, it's worth a try. It's a little bit of uncertainty. As soon as she arrived back outside Nut's special place, she sensed that it would be empty. She pushed the door open, and there was a definite absence of candles, and, more importantly, a very noticeable absence of Nut. But I told him to go and help them train. That's where he's gone, to go and train, definitely, she said to herself. So, no need to worry, then. On edge... Feeling that something was nevertheless wrong, she forced herself back to the night's kitchen. She was nearly there when she met Mr. Ottomy, his scrawny Adam's apple as red and glistening as chicken giblets. "'So, we've got a man-eating orc down here, have we?' he said. "'People aren't going to stand for that. I heard somewhere that they could go on fighting while their heads are chopped off.' "'That's interesting,' said Glenda. "'How did they know which way to go?' "'Aha! They could smell their way,' said the Bledlow. How could they do that with their heads chopped off? Are you telling me they had a nose up their ass? She was shocked at herself for saying that. It was bad language, but Otomy was bad language made solid. A don't hold with it, he said, ignoring the question. You know something else I heard? They were kind of made. When the evil emperor wanted fighters, he got some of the eagles to turn goblins into orcs. They're not really proper people at all. I'm going to complain to the arch-chancellor. He already knows, said Glenda. Well, he must do, she thought. And veterinary, too, she added to herself. You're not going to make trouble for Mr. Nutt, are you? she said. Because if you are Mr. Ottomy, she leaned forward, you will never be seen again. You shouldn't threaten me like that, he said. You're right, I shouldn't, said Glenda. I should have said that you will never be seen again, you egregious, slimy little twerp. Go and tell the Arch-Chancellor, if you like, and see how much good that does you. They eat people alive, said Ottomy. So did trolls, said Glenda. Admittedly, they spat them out again, but not in much of a state to enjoy life. We used to fight dwarfs once, and when they cut you off at the knees, they weren't joking. We know, Mr. Ottomy, that the leopard can change his shorts, she sniffed, and it might be a good idea if you did too. And if I hear of any trouble from you, you will hear from me. Up there is the Arch-Chancellor, "'Down here in the dark, it's cutlery. "'I'll tell him what you said,' said the luckless Bledlow, backing away. "'I would be very grateful if you did,' said Glenda. "'Now push off.' "'Why do we tell one another that the leopard cannot change his shorts?' "'She mused, as she watched him scurry away. "'Has anyone ever seen a leopard wearing shorts? "'And how would they be able to put them on if they had them? 
but we go on saying it as if it was some kind of holy truth, when it just means that we've run out of an argument. There was something she had to do. Now, what was it? Oh, yes. She went over once again to the cauldron on which she had chalked, Do Not Touch, and lifted up the lid. The beady eyes stared up at her from the watery depths, and she went away and got a few scraps of fish, which she dropped towards the waiting claws. Well, I know what to do with you at least, she said. A fully working kitchen holds a great many things, not least of which is a huge collection of ways of committing horrible murder, plus multiple ways of getting rid of the evidence. This wasn't the first time the thought had crossed her mind. She was quite glad about it. For now, she selected a really thick pair of gloves from a drawer, put her old coat on again, reached into the cauldron and picked up the crab. It snapped at her. She knew it would. Never, ever expect gratitude from those you help. Tide's turning, she told the crustacean. So we're going to take a little walk. She dropped it into her shopping bag and headed across the university lawns. A couple of graduate wizards were working in the university boatyard nearby. One looked at her and said, Are you supposed to be walking on the university lawns, madam? No, it is absolutely forbidden to kitchen staff, said Glenda. The students looked at one another. Oh, right, said one of them. And that was it. As easy as that. It was only a metaphorical hammer. It only hit you if you allowed it to be there. She pulled the crab out of her bag, and it waved its claws irritably. See that over there, she said, waving her own spare hand. That's hen and chicken's field. It's doubtful whether the crab's beady eyes could focus on the grassy waste across the river, but at least she pointed it in the right direction. People think it's because there was chickens kept there, she went on conversationally, while the two wizards looked at one another. As a matter of fact, that's not so. It used to be where people were hanged. And so, when they walked out from the old jail that used to be over there, the priest in front of the procession with his billowing robes seemed to lead the line of doomed men and jailers like a hen leading its chicks. That sort of thing is what we call a droll sense of humour in these parts, and I haven't got the faintest idea why I'm talking to you. I've done my best. You now know more than any other crab. She walked down to the very edge of what passed for water as the river flowed through the city, and dropped the crab into it. "'Stay clear of crab-pots and don't come back.' She turned round and realised the wizards had been watching her. "'Well,' she snapped, "'is there any law about talking to crabs around here?' She then gave them a little smile as she walked past. Back in the long corridors she wandered, feeling a little light-headed towards the vats. Some of its denizens eyed her nervously as she passed through, but there was no sign of nut. Not that she was looking for him at all. As she walked on towards the night's kitchen, Trev and Juliet appeared. Glenda couldn't help but notice that Juliet had a somewhat bright-eyed and ruffled look. That is, she couldn't help but notice because she made a point of noticing every time. Semi-parental responsibility was a terrible thing. "'What are you still doing here?' she said. They looked at her, and there was more in their expressions than mere embarrassment. "'I'll come back to say good-bye to the girls, and I had to wait for Trev because of the training.' Glenda sat down. "'Make me a cup of tea, will you?' And because old habits died hard, she added, "'Boil water in the kettle, two spoons of tea in the pot. Pour water from kettle into pot when it boils. Do not put tea in kettle.' She turned to Trev. "'Where's Mr. Nutt?' she said, nonchalance booming in her voice. Trev looked down at his feet. "'I don't know, Glenda,' he said. "'I've been—' "'Busy,' Glenda completed. "'But no hanky-panky,' said Juliet quickly. Glenda realised that right now she would not have minded if there had been hanky-panky, or even spanky. 
There were things that were important and things that weren't, and times when you knew the difference. So, how did Mr. Nutt get on, then? Trev and Juliet looked at one another. Uh, We don't know. He wasn't there, said Trev. We kind of thought he might be with you, said Juliet, handing her a cup of what you get when you ask for a cup of tea from someone who tends to confuse the recipe, even at the best of times. He wasn't in the Great Hall, said Glenda. No, he wasn't there. Wait one moment. Trev ran down the steps, and after a few seconds they heard his footsteps coming back. His toolbox is gone, said Trev. I mean, it wasn't much. He made it out of bits he found in the cellars, but as far as I know it's all he owned. I knew it, thought Glenda. Of course I knew it. Where could he be? He's got nowhere else to go but here, she said. Well, there is that place up in Uberwald he talks about quite a lot, said Trev. That's getting on for about a thousand miles away, said Glenda. Well, I suppose he thinks he might as well be there as here, said Juliet innocently. I mean, Ork, I'd want to run away from a name like that if it was me. Look, I'm sure he's just wandered off somewhere in the building, Glenda said, believing absolutely that he hadn't. But if I believe he's going to be around the next corner, or has just nipped off to powder his nose, or has just wandered away for half an hour, which of course is his right, perhaps he needs to go and buy a pair of socks. If I keep believing he'll turn up any minute, he might, even though I know he won't. She put down the cup. Half an hour, she said. Juliet, you go and check around the Great Hall. Trev, you go down the tunnels that way. I'll go down the tunnels this way. If you find anyone you can trust, ask them. A little more than half an hour later, Glenda was the last to turn up back in the night's kitchen. She very nearly half expected that he would be there and knew that he wouldn't. Would he know about getting on a coach, she said. I doubt he's ever seen one, said Trev. You know what I would do if I was him? I'd just run. It was like when Dad died. I spent all night walking round the city. I wasn't bothered where I went, just went. Wanted to run away from being me. How fast can an orc run, said Glenda. Much faster than a man, I bet, said Trev. And for a long time, too. Listen, this was Juliet. Can't you hear it? Hear what, said Glenda. Nothing, said Juliet. Well? What happened to Ork Ork? I think we'll find them where we find him, said Trev. Well, he can't run all the way back to Uberwald, said Glenda. You couldn't. At last, Glenda said it. I think we should go after him. I'll come, said Trev. Then I'm going to come too, insisted Juliet. Besides, I've still got the money and you're going to need it. Your money's in the bank, said Glenda, and the bank is shut. But I think I've got a few dollars in my purse. Then, excuse me, said Trev. I won't be a moment. I think there's something we ought to take. The driver of the horse bus to Stolat looked down and said, Two dollars, fifty pence each. But you only go to Stolat, said Glenda. Yes, said the man calmly. That's why it says Stolat on the front. We might have to go a lot further, said Trev. Just about every coach in this part of the world goes through Stolat, he said. How long will it take to get there? Well, this is the late night bus, OK? It's for people who've got to be in Stolat early and haven't got much money. And there's the rub, see? The less the money, the slower the travel. We get there in the end, somewhere around about dawn, in fact. All night? I think I could walk it faster. The man had the quiet, friendly air about him of someone who had found the best way to get through life was never to give much of a stuff about anything. Be my guest, he said. I'll wave to you as we go past. Glenda looked down the length of the coach. It was half full of the kind of people who took the overnight bus because it wasn't very expensive. The kind of people, in fact, who had brought their own dinner in a paper bag, and probably not a new paper bag at that. The three of them huddled. 
"'It's the only one we can afford,' said Trev. "'I don't think we can even afford travel for one on the mail coaches.' "'Can't we try and bargain with him?' said Glenda. "'Good idea,' said Trev. He walked back to the coach. "'Hello again,' said the driver. "'When are you going to leave?' said Trev. "'In about five minutes.' "'So everyone who's going to be riding is on the coach.' Glenda glanced past the driver. The passenger behind him was very meticulously peeling a hard-boiled egg. "'Could be,' said the driver. "'Then why not leave right now?' said Trev, and go faster. It's very important. Late night, said the driver. That's what I said. Supposing I was to threaten you with this lead pipe, would you go any faster? said Trev. Trevor lightly, said Glenda. You can't go around threatening people with lead pipes. The driver looked down at Trev and said, Can you run that past me again? I told you I had this length of lead pipe, said Trev, banging it gently against the bus's door. Sorry, but... "'We really need to get to Stow Lat.' "'Oh, right, yeah,' said the driver. "'I see your lead pipe.' "'And he reached down to the other side of his seat. "'And I will raise you this battle-axe, "'and would remind you that if I were to cut you in half, "'the law would be on my side. "'No offence, men. "'You must think I'm some kind of fool, "'but you're all hopping about like nits on a griddle, "'so what's this all about, then?' "'We've got to catch up with our friend. "'He could be in danger,' said Trev. "'And it's very romantic,' said Juliet. The driver looked at her. "'If you help us catch up with him, I'll give you a big kiss,' she said. "'There,' said the driver to Trev. "'Why didn't you think of that?' "'All right, I'll give you a kiss as well,' said Trev. "'No, thanks, sir,' said the driver, clearly enjoying himself. "'In your case, I think I'll go for the lead pipe, "'although please don't try anything, "'cause it's a devil's own job to get the bloodstains off the seats. "'Nothing seems to shift them.' "'Okay, I'll try to hit you with the lead pipe,' said Trev. "'We're desperate.' "'And we'll give you some money,' said Juliet. "'Sorry,' said the driver. "'Do I get the kiss, the money, and the lead pipe? "'I mean, I'd rather forego the lead pipe for another kiss.' Two kisses, a whole three dollars, and no lead pipe,' said Juliet. "'Or just the lead pipe, and I'll take my chances,' said Trev. Glenda, who had been watching them with a fascinated horror, said, "'And I'll give you a kiss as well, if you like.' She couldn't help noticing that this didn't move the stakes either way. "'But what about my passengers?' said the driver. All four of them looked into the back of the bus and realised that they were the subject of at least a dozen fascinated stares. "'Go for the kiss!' said a woman, holding a large laundry basket in front of her. "'And the money!' said one of the men. "'I don't give a stuff if she kisses him or hits him on the head with the lead pipe, so long as they drop us off first. said an old man towards the back of the bus. "'Do any of us get kissed as well?' said one half of a couple of giggling boys. "'If you like,' said Glenda viciously. "'They slumped back into their seats. "'Juliet grabbed the driver's face, "'and there was, for what seemed slightly too long, "'by the internal clocks of both Glenda and Trev, "'the sound of a tennis ball being sucked "'through the strings of a tennis racket. "'Juliet stepped back. "'The driver was smiling in a slightly stunned and cross-eyed way. "'Well, that was pretty much of a lead pipe. "'Perhaps I'd better drive,' said Trev. "'The driver smiled at him. "'I'll drive, thank you very much, and don't kid yourself, mister. "'I know a dicey one when I see one, and you don't come close. "'My old mum will be more likely to hit me with a lead pipe than you. "'Throw it away, why don't you, or someone will give you a centre parting "'you won't forget in a hurry.' "'He winked at Juliet. "'What with one thing or another, it's a good idea to give the horses a bit of a run every now and again. "'All aboard for Stolat.' "'The horse buses did not usually travel very fast, "'and the driver's definition of a run "'was only marginally faster than what most people would call a walk. 
but he managed to get them up to something that at least meant they did not have the time to get bored by a passing tree. The bus was for people, as the driver had pointed out, who couldn't afford speed but could afford time. In its construction, therefore, no expense had been attempted. It was really no more than a cart with double seats all the way along it from the driver's slightly elevated bench. Tarpaulins on either side kept out the worst of the weather, but fortunately still let in enough of the wind to mitigate the smell of the upholstery, which had experienced humanity in all its manifold moods and urgencies. Glenda got the impression that some of the travellers were regulars. An elderly woman was sitting quietly knitting. The boys were still engaged in the furtive giggling appropriate to their age, and a dwarf was staring out the window without looking at anything in particular. No one really bothered about talking to anybody, except a man right at the back, who was having a continuous conversation with himself. "'This isn't fast enough!' Glenda shouted after ten minutes of bouncing over the potholes. "'I could run faster than this!' "'I don't think he's going to get that far,' said Trev. The sun was going down, and the shadows were already drawing across the cabbage fields, but there was a figure on the road ahead struggling. Trev jumped off. "'Ork! Ork!' "'It's those wretched things,' said Glenda, running up behind him. "'Give me that lead pipe!' Nut was half-crouched in the dust on the road. The sisters of perpetual velocity were half-flying and half-flapping around him while he tried to protect his face with his hands. The passengers of the bus were quite unnoticed until the lead pipe arrived, followed very shortly by Glenda. It didn't have the effect she'd hoped. The sisters were indeed like birds. She couldn't so much hit them as bat them through the air. "'Ork! Ork!' "'You stop trying to hurt him!' she screamed. "'He hasn't done anything wrong!' Nut raised an arm and grabbed her wrist. There wasn't much pressure, but somehow she couldn't move it at all. It was as if it had suddenly been embalmed in stone. "'They're not here to hurt me,' he said. "'They're here to protect you.' "'Who from?' "'Me. At least that's how it's supposed to go. "'But I don't need any protection from you. That doesn't make any sense.' "'They think you might,' said Nut, "'but that is not the worst of it.' The creatures were circling, and the other passengers, sharing the endemic Ankh-Morpork taste for impromptu street theatre, had piled out and had become an appreciative audience, which clearly discomforted the sisters. "'What is the worst of it, then?' said Glenda, waving the pipe at the nearest sister, which jumped back out of the way. "'They may be right.' "'All right, so you're an orc,' said Trev. "'So they used to eat people. Have you eaten anyone lately?' "'No, Mr. Trev. Well, there you are, then.' "'You can't arrest someone for something he hasn't done,' said one of the bus passengers, nodding sagely. "'Fundamental law, that.' "'What's an orc?' said the lady next to him. "'Oh, back in the olden days, up in Ubervelt or somewhere, they used to tear people to bits and eat them.' "'That's foreigners for you,' said the woman. "'But they're all dead now,' said the man. "'That's nice,' said the woman. "'Would anyone like some tea? I've got a flask.' "'All dead, except me, but I am afraid that I am an orc,' said Nut. He looked up at Glenda. "'I'm sorry,' he said. "'You have been very kind, but I can see that being an orc will follow me around. There will be trouble. I would hate you to be involved.' "'Orc! Orc!' The woman unscrewed the top of her flask. "'But you're not about to eat anyone, are you, dear? If you feel really hungry, I've got some macaroons.' She looked at the nearest sister and said, "'What about you, love?' I know none of us can help how we're made, but how come you've been made to look like a chicken? Ork! Ork! Danger! Danger! Don't know about that, said another passenger. I don't reckon he's going to do anything. Please, please, said Nut. There was a box lying on the road beside him. 
He tore it open frantically and started to pull things out of it. They were candles. Knocking them over in his haste, picking them up in shaking fingers, only to knock them over again, he finally had them upright on the flints of the road. He pulled matches out of another pocket, knelt down, and once again got his shaking fingers tangled in themselves as he struggled to strike a match. Tears streamed down his face as the light of the candles rose. Rose and changed. Blues, yellows, greens. They would go out for a few smoky seconds and then light again a different colour to the oohs and ahs of the crowd. See? See? said Nut. You like them? You like them? I think you could make yourself a lot of money out of that, said one of the passengers. They're lovely, said the old lady. Honestly, the things you young people can do today. Nut turned to the sister and spat. I am not worthless. I have worth. My brother-in-law runs a novelty shop down in the smoke, said the erstwhile expert in orcs. I'll write his address down for you if you like, but I reckon that thing would go down very well on the kiddie's birthday circuit. Glenda had watched all of this open-mouthed as the kind of democracy practised by reasonable and amiable but not very clever people, the people whose education had never involved a book but had involved lots of other people, surrounded Nut in his invisible, beneficent arms. It was heartwarming, but Glenda's heart was a little bit calloused on this score. It was the crab bucket at its best, sentimental and forgiving, but get it wrong— one wrong word, one wrong liaison, one wrong thought, and those nurturing arms could so easily end in fists. Nut was right. At best, being an orc was to live under a threat. "'You lot have got no right treating the poor little devil like that,' said the old lady, waving her finger at the nearest sister. "'If you want to live here, you have to do things our way, all right? And that means no pecking at people. That's not how we do things in Ankh-Morpork.' Even Glenda smiled at that one. Pecking was a picnic compared with what Ank Morpork could offer. "'Betinari's letting all sorts in these days,' said another passenger. "'I won't hear a word said against the dwarfs.' "'Good,' said a voice at his back. He moved aside, and Glenda saw the dwarf standing behind him. "'Sorry, mate, I didn't see you there, what with you being so little,' said the man who had nothing against dwarfs. "'As I was saying, you lot just settle down and get on with it, and are no trouble to anybody. But we're getting some weird ones now.' "'That woman they put in the watch last month, for one,' said the old lady. "'The weird one from out of Phoebe way. "'Gust of wind caught her sunglasses, and three people turned into stone.' "'She was a Medusa,' said Glenda, who had read about that in the Times. "'The wizards managed to turn them back again, though.' "'Well, what I'm saying is,' started the man who had nothing against dwarfs, "'we don't mind anyone, so long as they mind their own business and don't do any funny stuff.' "'This was the rhythm of the world to Glenda. "'She'd heard it so many times.' but the feeling of the crowd was now very much against the sisters. Sooner or later, somebody was going to pick up a stone. "'I'd get out of here now,' she said. "'Get out and go back to the lady you work for. I should do that right now if I were you.' "'Ork! Ork!' one of them screeched. But there were brains in those strange-shaped heads, and the three sisters were clearly bright enough to want to keep them there, and ran for it, hopping and leaping like herons, until what seemed like cloaks turned out to be wings, which pounded on the air as they sought for height. There was a final scream of, "'Ork! Ork!' The driver of the horse-bus coughed. "'Well, if that's all sorted out, then I suggest you all get back on board, please, ladies and gentlemen, and whoever, and don't forget your candles, mister.' Glenda helped Nut onto a wooden seat. He was holding his toolbox tightly across his knees, as if it would offer some sort of protection. "'Where were you trying to go?' she said as the horses began to move. "'Home,' 
said Nut. Back to her? She gave me worth, said Nut. I was nothing, and she gave me worth. How can you say you were nothing, said Glenda. On the pair of seats in front of them, Trev and Juliet were whispering together. I was nothing, said Nut. I knew nothing. I understood nothing. I had no understanding. I had no skill. But that doesn't mean someone is worthless, said Glenda firmly. It does, said Nut, but it does not mean they are bad. I was worthless. She showed me how to gain worth, and now I have worth. Glenda had a feeling they were working from two different dictionaries. What does worth mean, Mr. Nut? It means that you leave the world better than when you found it, said Nut. Good point, said the lady with the macaroons. There's far too many people around a place who wouldn't dream of doing a hand's turn. All right, but what about people who are blind, for example? This from the hard-boiled egg man sitting on the other side of the bus. I know a blind bloke in Stowlat who runs a bar, said an elderly gentleman. Knows where everything is, and when you put your money on the counter, he knows if it's the right change just by listening. He does all right. It's amazing. He can pick out a dud sixpence halfway across a noisy bar. I don't think there are absolutes, said Nut. I think what ladyship meant was that you do the best you can with what you have. Sounds like a sensible lady, said the man who had nothing against dwarfs. She's a vampire, said Glenda maliciously. Nothing against vampires, just so long as they keep themselves to themselves, said the macaroon lady, who was now engaged in licking something revoltingly pink. We've got one working down at the kosher butchers on our street, and she's as nice as you like. I don't think it's about what you end up with, said the dwarf. It's about what you end up with compared with what you started with. Glenda leaned back with a smile as attempts at philosophy bounced their way from seat to seat. She wasn't at all certain about the whole thing, but Nut was sitting there looking far less bedraggled, and the rest of them were treating him as one of themselves. There were dim lights ahead in the darkness. Glenda slipped from her seat and went up ahead to the driver. Are we nearly there yet? Uh, another five minutes, said the driver. Sorry about all that silly business with the lead pipe, she said. Didn't happen, said the man cheerfully. Believe me, we get all sorts on the night bus. At least no one's thrown up. Quite an interesting lad you got back there with you. You've no idea, said Glenda. Of course, all he's saying is you've got to do your best, said the driver. And the more best you're capable of, the more you should do. That's it, really. Glenda nodded. That did seem to be it, really. Do you go straight back, she said. No, me and the horses are stopping here and we'll go back in the morning. He gave her the wry look of a man who's heard a great many things, and surprisingly seen a great many things, when to those behind him he was just ahead, facing forward, keeping an eye on the road. That was a wonderful kiss she gave me. I'll tell you what, the bus will be in the yard. There's plenty of straw round, and if anyone was to have a bit of a kip, I wouldn't know about it, would I? We'll leave at six with fresh horses. He grinned at her expression. I told you, we get all sorts on the late-night bus. Kids running away from home, wives running away from husbands, husbands running away from other wives' husbands. It's called an omnibus, see? And omni means everything, and damn near everything happens on this bus. That's why I have the axe, see? But the way I see it, life can't be all axe. He raised his voice. Stolat coming up, folks. Return trip, six o'clock prompt. He winked at Glenda. And if you're not there, I'll go without you he said. You've got to catch the bus at bus-catching time. Well, this hasn't been so bad, has it? said Glenda, as the lights of the city grew bigger. My dad's going to fret, said Juliet. He'll think you're with me. Trev said nothing. 
by the rules of the street, being exposed in front of your want-to-be girlfriend as the kind of man who can so easily be seen not to be the kind of man that would have the guts to belt someone over the head with a length of lead pipe, was extremely shaming, although no one seemed to have noticed this. "'Looks like a bit of trouble ahead,' the driver called back. "'The Lanka flyer ain't gone.' All they could see were flares and lantern lights illuminating the big coaching inn outside the city gate, where several coaches were standing. As they drew nearer, he called to one of the skinny, bandy-legged and weasley-looking men who seemed to self-generate around any establishment that involved the movement of horses. "'Flyer not gone?' he inquired. The weasley man removed a cigarette end from his mouth. "'Horse frowed a shoe.' "'Well, they got a smith here, ain't they? Speed the mails and all that.' "'He's not speeding nothing on account of him just laminating his hand to the anvil,' said the man. "'There'll be the devil to pay if the flyer don't go,' said the driver. "'That's post, that is. You should be able to set your watch by the flyer.' Nutt stood up. "'I could certainly reshoe a horse for you, sir,' he said, picking up his wooden toolbox. "'Perhaps you had better go and tell someone.' The man sidled off, and the bus came to rest in the big yard, where a rather better-dressed man came hurrying up. "'What have you a smith?' he inquired, looking directly at Glenda. "'Me,' said Nutt. The man stared. "'You don't look much like a smith, sir.' "'Contrary to popular belief, most smiths are on the wiry side rather than bulky. "'It's all a matter of sinews rather than muscle. "'And you know your way around an anvil, do you?' "'You would be amazed, sir.' "'There's shoes in the smithy,' said the man. "'You'll have to work one to size.' "'I know how to do that,' said Nutt. "'Mr. Trev, I would be glad if you would come and help me with the bellows.' The inn was huge and crowded, because, as with coaching inns everywhere, its day lasted for twenty-four hours and not a moment less. There were no mealtimes as such. Hot food for those who could afford it was available all the time, and cold cuts of meats were on a large trestle in the main room. People arrived, were emptied and refilled in the speediest time possible, and sent on their way again, because the space was needed for the next arrivals. There never seemed to be a moment without the jangle of harnesses. Glenda found a quiet corner. "'I tell you what,' she said to Juliet, "'go and fetch some sandwiches for the lads.' "'Fancy Mr. Nutt being a blacksmith,' said Juliet. "'He's a man of many parts,' said Glenda. Juliet's brow wrinkled. "'How many parts?' "'It's just a figure of speech, Juliet. Off you go now.' She needed time to think. Those strange flying women. Mr. Nutt. It was all a lot to take. You start the day, and it's just another day, and here you are, having mercifully not ended up as a highwayman, sitting in another city with nothing more than the clothes you're standing up in, not knowing what is going to happen next. Which, in a way, was exciting. She had to analyse that feeling for several moments, because excitement was not a regular feature of her life. Pies, on the whole, do not excite. She got up and wandered unheeded through the crowds, with the vague idea of seeing what the kitchens were like but found her path blocked by someone whose sweating face, flustered air, and rotund body suggested he was the innkeeper. "'If you could just wait a moment, ma'am,' he said to her, and then addressed a woman who was emerging from what looked like a private dining-room. "'So nice to see you again, your ladyship,' he said, bobbing up and down a little. "'It's always an honour to have you grace our humble establishment.' "'Ladyship?' Glenda looked up at the woman who was everything she had pictured when Nutt had first talked about her. "'tall, thin, dark, forbidding, to be feared. "'Her expression was stern, and she said, in what to Glenda were posh tones, "'Far too noisy in there.' "'About the beef was superb,' 
said another voice, and Glenda realised that Ladyship had almost eclipsed a smaller woman, quite pleasant, not particularly tall, and with a slightly fussy air about her. "'Are you Lady Margolotta?' said Glenda. The tall lady gave her a look of brief disdain and swept on towards the main doors, but her companion stopped and said, "'Do you have business with her ladyship?' "'Is she coming to Ankh-Morpork?' Glenda asked. "'Everybody knows she's Lord Vetinari's squeeze.' She felt instantly embarrassed as she said the word. It conjured up images that simply could not fit into the available space in her brain. "'Really?' said the woman. "'They are certainly very close friends.' "'Well, I want to talk to her about Mr. Nutt,' said Glenda. The woman gave her a worried look and pulled her over to an empty bench. "'There has been a problem,' she said, sitting down and patting the wood beside her. "'She told him he was worthless,' said Glenda, "'and sometimes I think all he worries about is being worthy.' "'Are you worthy?' said the woman. "'What sort of question is that to ask a stranger?' "'An interesting and possibly revealing one. "'Do you think the world is a better place with you in it? "'And would you do me the courtesy of actually thinking about your answer "'rather than pulling one off the affronted rack? "'I'm afraid there's far too much of that these days.' People believe that acting and thinking are the same thing. Faced with that, Glenda settled for, Yes. You've made it better, have you? Yes, I've helped lots of people, and I invented the ploughman's pie. Did the people you helped want to be helped? What? Yes, they came and asked. Good. And the ploughman's pie? Glenda told her. "'Ah, you must be the cook at Unseen University,' said the woman, "'which means you have access to rather more than the average cook, "'and therefore I would deduce that to keep the pickled onions crisp in the pie "'you put them in a cold room at very nearly freezing point "'for some time immediately before baking, "'possibly wrapping them in cheese for the sake of temporary insulation. "'And, if you have assembled your pie correctly and paid attention to temperatures,' I think that would do the trick. She paused. Hello. Are you a cook? said Glenda. Good grief, no. So you worked it out just like that? Mr. Nutt told me her ladyship employs very clever people. Well, I'm embarrassed to say it, but that is true. But she shouldn't have told Mr. Nutt that he's worthless. She shouldn't say that to people. But he was worthless, yes? He couldn't even talk properly when he was found. Surely what she has done has helped him. "'But he frets all the time, and it's got out now that he's an orc. "'What's that all about? "'And is he in your mind doing anything particularly orcish?' "'Reluctantly,' Glenda said, "'sometimes his fingernails turn into claws.' "'The woman looked suddenly concerned. "'And what does he do then?' "'Well, nothing,' said Glenda. "'They just sort of go back in again. "'But he makes wonderful candles,' she added quickly. "'He's always making things. "'It's as if—' "'Worth is something that drains away all the time, so you have to keep topping it up?' "'Possibly, now you put it that way, she has been a little too brisk with him.' "'Does she love him?' asked Glenda. "'I beg your pardon. I mean, has anyone ever loved him?' "'Oh, I think she does, in her way,' said the woman. "'Although she's a vampire, you know, they tend to see the world rather differently.' "'Well, if I met her, I'd give her a piece of my mind,' said Glenda, muddling him about.' "'Setting those wretched flying ladies on him, I wouldn't let her do that sort of thing.' "'She is immensely strong, I'm led to believe,' said the woman. "'That doesn't give her the right,' said Glenda. "'And shall I tell you something? Mr. Nutt is right here. Oh, yes, 
out in the yard, shooing one of the horses for the Lanker Flyer. He really is amazing. It sounds like it, said the woman with a faint little smile. You certainly seem to be a vehement supporter, Glenda hesitated. Is that something to do with foxes, she said. It means with great passion, said the woman. Do you have a great passion for Mr. Nuts, Miss Sugarbean? And remember, please, I do like people to do me the honour of thinking before they speak. Well, I like him a lot, said Glenda hotly. That is charming, said the woman. It does occur to me that Mr. Nutt might have achieved more worth than I had previously thought. So you tell her ladyship what I said, said Glenda, feeling her neck on fire with blushes. Mr. Nutt has got friends. Indeed I will, said the woman, standing up. And now, if you'll excuse me, I'm sure our coach is about to depart. I must fly. Remember to tell her what I said, Glenda shouted after her. She saw the woman turn to smile at her, and then she was lost as a party arriving from a new coach hurried in from the cold night's air. Glenda, who had stood up at the same time as the woman, sat down heavily. Who on earth did that woman think she was? Her ladyship's librarian, probably. Nut had mentioned her several times, altogether too many ideas above her station for Glenda's liking. She hadn't even had the decency to give Glenda her name. The faint... Distant hunting horns of sheer terror began to sound in the back of her mind. Had the woman asked Glenda her name? No. But she'd certainly known it. And how would she know about the cook at Unseen University? And she'd been so quick she'd worked out the ploughman's pie with a snap of her fingers. That little part of her that had first been liberated by the sherry chimed in with, "'The trouble with you is that you make assumptions. You see something and you think you know what you've seen.' She certainly didn't sound like a librarian, did she? Very slowly, Glenda raised her right hand into a fist and lowered it into her mouth and bit down very hard in an attempt to somehow retrieve the last fifteen minutes from the records of the universe and replace them with something far less embarrassing, like her knickers falling down. Even here, late into the night, the forge was the heart of attention. Coaches were arriving and leaving constantly. The inn did not run according to the sun, it ran according to the timetable, and aimless people, waiting for their connections, gravitated to the forge as a free show and a place of comfort in the chilly night air. Nut was shoeing a horse. Trev had seen horses being shod before, but never like this. The animal stood as if transfixed, trembling very slightly. When Nut wanted it to move, he clicked his tongue. When he wanted its leg raised, another click caused this to happen. Trev felt that he wasn't watching a man shoeing a horse, but a master demonstrating his skills to a world of amateurs. When the shoe was on, the horse walked backwards in front of the crowd, for all the world like a fashion model, turning as Nut moved a hand or made a clicking noise. It didn't seem to be a particularly happy horse, but great heavens it was certainly an obedient one. Yes, that all seems fine, Nut said. How much is that going to cost us? said the coachman. Wonderful job, if I may say so. How much? How much? How much? said Nutt, turning it over in his mind. Have I earned worth, sir? I should say so, mate. I've never seen a horse shod as smooth as that. Then worth will do, said Nutt, and a ride for myself and my three friends back to Ankh-Morpork. And five dollars, said Trev, coming away from his lounging spot near the wall with the speed of money. The coachman sniffed. A bit steep, he said. "'What?' said Trev. "'For a late-night job? "'The better than Burley and Strong in the arm specification? 
Not a bad deal, I think. A murmur from the other watchers backed Trev up. I never seen anyone do anything like that, said Juliet. He'd have had that horse dancing if you'd asked him. The coachman winked at Trev. All right, lad, what can I say? Old Avacook there is a good lad, but a bit bad-tempered as it goes. Once kicked a coachman through the wall. I never thought I'd see him stand there and lift his leg up like a trained lapdog. Your chum has earned his money and his ride. Please take him away, said Nut. But hold him with care, because when he gets a little way away from me, he might get a tiny bit frisky. The crowd dispersed. Nut methodically damped down the forge and started to pack his tools into the box. If we're going to go back, we'd better go now. Has anyone seen Miss Glenda? Here, said Glenda, advancing out of the shadows. Trev, you and Jules go and get us some seats on the coach. I need to talk to Mr. Nutt. Her ladyship was here, said Glenda, when they'd gone. I would not be surprised, said Nutt calmly, snapping the catches shut on his box. Just about everybody passes through here, and she travels a great deal. Why were you running away? Because I know what will happen, said Nutt. I am an orc. It's as simple as that. But the people on the bus were on your side, said Glenda. Nutt flexed his hands, and the claws slid out just for a moment. And tomorrow, he said, and if something goes wrong, everybody knows orcs will tear your arms off. Everybody knows orcs will tear your head off. Everybody knows these things. That is not good. Well, then, wh why are you coming back? Glenda demanded. Because you are kind and came after me. How could I refuse? But it does not change the things that everybody knows. But every time you make a candle, and every time you shoe a horse, you change the things that everybody knows, said Glenda. You know that orcs were, she hesitated, sort of made. Oh, yes, it was in the book. She nearly exploded. Well, then, why didn't you tell me? Is it important? We are what we are now. But you don't have to be, Glenda yelled. Everybody knows trolls eat people and spit them out. Everybody knows dwarves cut your legs off. But at the same time, everybody knows that what everybody knows is wrong. And orcs didn't decide to be like they are. People will understand that. It will be a dreadful burden. I'll help. Glenda was shocked at the speed of her response, and then mumbled, I'll help. The coals in the forge crackled as they settled down. Fires in a busy forge seldom die out completely. After a while, Glenda said, You wrote that poem for Trev, didn't you? Yes, Miss Glenda. I hope she liked it. Glenda thought she'd better raise this carefully. I think I ought to tell you that she didn't understand a lot of the words exactly. I sort of had to translate it for her. It hadn't been too difficult, she reckoned. Most love poems were pretty much the same under the curly writing. Did you like it? said Nut. It was a wonderful poem, said Glenda. I wrote it for you, said Nut. He was looking at her with an expression that stirred together fear and defiance in equal measure. The cooling embers brightened up at this. After all, a forge has a soul. As if they had been waiting there, the responses lined themselves up in front of Glenda's tongue. Whatever you do next is going to be very important, she told herself. Really, extremely very important. Don't start wondering about what Mary the bloody housemaid would do in one of those cheap novels you read, because Mary was made up by someone with a name suspiciously like an anagram for people like you. She is not real, and you are. We had better get on the coach, said Nutt, picking up his box. Glenda gave up on the thinking and burst into tears. It has to be said that they were not the gentle tears they would have been from Mary the housemaid, 
but the really big, long-drawn-out, blobby ones you get from someone who very rarely cries. They were gummy, with a hint of snot in there as well. But they were real. Mary the housemaid would just not have been able to match them. So, of course, it will be just like Trev likely to turn up out of the shadows and say, They're calling the coach now. Are you two all right? Nut looked at Glenda. Tears aren't readily retractable, but she managed to balance a smile on them. I believe this to be the case, said Nut. Travelling on a fast coach on even a mild autumn night, those passengers on the roof experience the temperature that can freeze doorknobs. There are leather covers and rugs of various age, thickness and smell. Survival is only possible by wrapping yourself in the biggest cocoon you can achieve, preferably with somebody else next to you. Two people can heat up faster than one. In theory, all of this could lead to hanky-panky, but the seats of the coach and the rockiness of the road mean that such things are not uppermost in the traveller's mind, which dreams longingly of cushions. Furthermore, there was a fine rain now. Juliet craned her head to look at the seats behind, but they were just the mounds of damp rugs that were the coach company's answer to the cold night's air. "'You don't think they're sweet on each other, do you?' she said. Trev, who was himself cocooned in rugs, only managed a grunt, but then went on, "'I think he admires her. He always seems a bit tongue-tied when he's near her, that's all I know.' This had to be a romance, Glenda thought. It wasn't like the ones peddled every week by Eradney Combe-Buttworthy. It felt more real, more real and very, very strange. "'Did you know that all of the orcs were hunted down after the war? All of them, children too,' Nut said. And people don't say things like that in a romantic situation, thought Glenda. But it still is, she added. But they were forced, she replied. They had children, OK? Should I tell him about the magic mirror, she wondered. Would it make things better or worse? They were very bad times, said Nut. Well, look at it like this, said Glenda. Most of the people who talk about orcs now don't know what they're on about. But the only orc they are ever going to see is you. You making beautiful candles. You training the football team. That will mean a lot. You'll show them that orcs don't go around pulling people's heads off. That'll be something to be proud of. Well, in fairness, I have to say that when I think of the amount of radial force that must have been necessary to effectively unscrew a human head against its owner's wishes, I am a little impressed. But that's now, sitting here with you. Then I wanted to go up to the hills. I think that's how we must have survived. If you didn't keep away from humans, you died. Yes, that's a very good point, said Glenda. But I think you should keep it to yourself for now. She noticed a surprised owl, lit up briefly by the coach's lamps. Then she said, keeping her eyes straight ahead, The uh, thing about the poem. How did you know, Miss Glenda? said Nut. You talk about kindness a lot, she cleared her throat. And under these circumstances, I think Glenda is sufficient. You are kind to me, said Nut. You are kind to everybody. Glenda swiftly put aside a vision of Mr. Ottomy and said, No, I'm not. I'm shouting at everyone all the time. Yes, but it's for their own good. What do we do now? Glenda said. I have no idea. But can I tell you something very interesting about ships? It wasn't exactly what Glenda had expected, but somehow it was one hundred percent nut. Please tell me the interesting thing about ships, she said. The interesting thing about ships is that the captains of ships have to be very careful when two ships are close together at sea, particularly in calm conditions. They tend to collide. 
"'Because of the wind blowing and that,' said Glenda, thinking, "'in theory this is a romantic novel situation, "'and I'm about to learn about ships. "'Eradney Combe Butworthy never puts a ship in her books. "'They probably don't have enough reticules.' "'No,' said Nut. "'In fact, to put it simply, "'each ship shields the other ship from lateral waves on one side, "'so by small increments outside forces "'bring them together without their realising it.' "'Oh, it's a metaphor,' said Glenda, relieved. "'You think we're being pushed together.' "'It's something like that,' said Nut. "'They rocked as the coach hit a particularly nasty pothole. "'So if we don't do anything, we'll just get closer and closer.' "'Yes,' said Nut. "'The coach jumped and rattled again, "'but Glenda felt as if she were travelling over very thin ice. "'She'd hate to say the wrong thing. "'You know Trev said that I died,' Nut continued. "'Well, that was true.' Probably. Ladyship said that we were made from goblins for the evil emperor. The Igors did it. And they put in something very strange. It's a part of you that isn't quite a part of you. They called it the little brother. It's tucked in, deep inside, and absolutely protected, and it's like having your own hospital with you all the time. I know that I was hit very hard, but the little brother kept me alive and simply cured things again. There are ways to kill an orc, but there are not many of them, and anyone trying them out on a living orc is not going to have very much time to get it right. Does that worry you at all? No, not really, said Glenda. I don't really understand it. I think it's more important just to be who you are. No, I don't think I should be who I am, because I am an orc, but I have some plans in that direction. Glenda cleared her throat again. This... Thing with the ships, does it happen quite quickly? It starts quite slowly, but it's quite quick towards the end, said Nut. The thing is, said Glenda, I mean, I can't just walk away from my job, and there's old ladies I go and visit, and you'll be busy with the football. Yes, I think we should be doing the things we should be doing, and it's the last training day tomorrow, which is actually today now, said Nut, and I've got to make a lot of pies. It's going to be a very busy time for both of us said Nut solemnly. Yes, um, do you mind me saying, in your lovely poem, the line, The crypt's a handsome place to be, but none, I think, leave after tea, didn't quite, didn't quite work? I know, said Nut. I feel rather bad about that. Oh, please don't, it's a wonderful poem, Glenda burst out, and felt the ripples in the calm sea. The rising sun managed to peek around the vast column of smoke that forever rose from Ankh-Morpork, city of cities, illustrating almost up to the edge of space that smoke means progress, or at least people setting fire to things. "'I think we're going to be so busy that we're not going to have much time for—' "'Ourselves,' said Glenda. "'I quite agree,' said Nut. "'Leaving things alone would definitely be our wisest move.' Glenda felt light as air as the coach trundled down Broadway, and it wasn't just from lack of sleep. That stuff about boats. I really hope he doesn't think it's all about ships. There was a crowd outside the university when they arrived, just as yesterday, but it seemed to have a different complexion now. People were staring at her and Nut, and there was something wrong with the way they were looking. She reached over to the mound that was Trev, pretended not to hear a girlish giggle, and said, Trev? "'Could you uh, have a look at this? I think there's going to be trouble.' Trev, very tousled, stuck his head out and said, mm, "'Me too. Let's all nip round the back.' "'We could stay on and get off at the post office,' said Glenda. "'No,' said Trev. "'We haven't done anything wrong.' 
as they dismounted from the coach, a small boy said to Nut, "'Are you the orc, mister?' "'Yes,' said Nut, as he helped Glenda down. "'I am an orc.' "'Cool! Have you ever twisted someone's head off?' "'I don't believe so. I'm sure I would have remembered,' said Nut. This got, if not applause, then a certain amount of approval from some of the bystanders. "'It's his voice,' thought Glenda. "'He sounds posher than the wizard. "'You can't imagine a voice like that with its hand around somebody's head.' At this point the back gate opened, and Ponder Stibbons came hurrying through. "'We saw you from the hall,' he said, grabbing Nut. "'Come in quick. Where have you all been?' "'We had to go to Stolat,' said Trev. "'On business,' said Juliet. "'Personal,' said Glenda, daring Ponder to object. "'Is there something wrong?' "'There was something in the paper this morning. "'We have not been having a very nice time,' said Ponder, "'towing them into the relative safety of the Undercrofts. "'Have they been saying something nasty about Mr Nutt?' said Trev. "'Not exactly,' said Ponder. "'The editor of the Times came round in person "'and was knocking on the door to see the Arch-Chancellor at midnight. "'He wanted to know all about you.' "'This was said directly to Nutt. "'I bet it was bloody Otomy that told them,' growled Glenda. "'What have they done?' "'Well, of course, you know there was all that trouble over the Medusa in the watch a little while ago,' Ponder began. "'Yeah, but you wizards sorted that out,' said Trev. "'But no one likes being turned into stone, even if it's just for half an hour,' Ponder sighed. "'The Times has done one of their thoughtful pieces. I suppose it isn't too bad. It quoted the Arch-Chancellor, who says that Mr Nutt is a hard-working member of the university staff, and there have been no incidents of anyone's leg being torn off.' "'They put it like that!' said Glenda, wide-eyed. "'Oh, you know the sort of thing if you read the papers a lot,' said Ponder. "'I seriously think they think that it's their job to calm people down by first of all explaining why they should be overexcited and very worried.' "'Oh, yes, I know they do that,' said Glenda. "'How would people get worried if they weren't told how to be?' "'Well, it wasn't all that bad,' said Ponder. "'But a few of the other papers have picked it up as well, and some of the facts have become elastic. The inquirer said Nutt is training the football team.' "'That's true,' said Glenda. "'Well, actually, it's me. "'I'm merely delegating the task to him. "'I hope that's understood. "'Anyway, they did a cartoon about it.' "'Glenda put a hand over her eyes. "'She hated cartoons in newspapers. "'Was it a football team of orcs?' she said. "'Ponder's look was almost admiring. "'Yes,' he said, "'and they did an article about raising important questions "'about veterinary's open-door policy.' while saying at the same time that rumours that Mr. Nutt had to be chained down were quite likely false. "'What about the Tanty Bugle?' said Glenda. "'They never write anything unless it's got blood and horrible murder in it.' She paused and then added, "'Or pictures of girls without their vests on.' "'Oh, yes,' said Ponder. "'They did a rather grainy picture of a young lady with enormous melons.' "'Do you mean?' Treb began. "'No, they were just enormous melons, the, the green ones, slightly warty.' She won a contest for growing them, apparently, but in the caption it said that she's worried that she won't be able to sleep easily in her bed now that orcs are coming into the city. Is Lord Vetinari doing anything about this? I haven't heard, said Ponder. Oh, and Bubble want to interview Mr. Nutt, what they call a lifestyle piece. He said the words as if trying to hold them at arm's length. Have people turned up for training, said Nutt calmly. Oh, yes, the ground is heaving. "'So we'll go and train them,' said Nut. "'Don't worry, I won't twist anybody's head off.' "'No, don't make jokes,' said Glenda. "'I think this could be terribly bad.' "'We know something's going on with the teams,' said Ponder, "'and there were lots of fights during the night. "'About what? "'About who's going to play us?' "'Ponder stopped 
and looks Nut up and down. Commander Vimes is back in town and would like to lock you up, he said. Only in protective custody, of course. You mean put him somewhere where they can all find him, said Glenda. I would say that the chances of a mob breaking into Pseudopolis Yard are remote, said Ponder. Yes, but you're locking him up. That's what it would be. He'd be locked up and coppers chat like everyone else. The Orc could be locked up in prison, and if people don't know why, they'll make it up. That's how people are. Can't you wizards do something? Yes, said Ponder. We can do practically anything, but we can't change people's minds. We can't magic them sensible. Believe me, if it were possible to do that, we would have done it a long time ago. We can stop people fighting by magic, and then what do we do? We have to go on using magic to stop them fighting. We have to go on using magic to stop them being stupid. And where does all that end? So we make certain that it doesn't begin. That's why the university is here. That's what we do. We have to sit around not doing things because of the hundreds of times in the past it's been proved that once you get beyond the abracadabra, hey presto, changing the pigeons into ping-pong balls style of magic, you start getting more problems than you've solved. It was bad enough finding ping-pong balls nesting in the attics. Ping-pong balls nesting, said Trev. I don't want to talk about it, said Ponder glumly. I remember when one of you gentlemen got hungry in the night and cast a spell for a baked potato, said Glenda. Ponder shuddered. That was the bursar, he said. He really does get confused about the decimal point. I remember all those wheelbarrows, said Glenda, slightly amused at Ponder's discomfort. Days and days it took to get them all out. I heard we were feeding every beggar in the city and every pig farm out as far as Stolat for weeks. Ponder nearly gave a harumph. Well, yes, there's an example of why we have to be careful. But there's still going to be a match tomorrow, and I would like to conclude my training programme, said Nut. Ah, there's another problem. You know Lord Vetinari is allowing the hippo to be used for the game. Well, some of the teams are doing their training there now. You know, a, a bit of a kickabout and so on. It's all about who will be playing unseen academicals. But that's the other side of the city, said Glenda. Commander Vimes has said the watch will provide an escort, said Ponder, just for protection, you know. Whose? said Glenda. You can see what's going on here. People will see Mr. Nutt as the problem. Oh, it's all fun and games until someone loses a head, said a voice behind Glenda. She recognised that voice, and it always sounded as if it was trying to put its hand up her jumper. Pepe, what the hell are you doing here? And how did you get in? Ponder demanded. The watch are all around this place. Pepe barely gave him a glance. And who are you, smart boy? I run this university. Then I should go away and run it, because you're not going to be any good around here. Is this person known to you, miss? Ponder demanded. Uh, yes, he uh, designs clothes. I am a fashionista, said Pepe. I can do things with clothing that you wouldn't think were possible. I believe that, at least, said Trev. And I know a thing or two about riots and mobs. An idea struck Glenda, and she whispered to the irate Ponder. Very big in dwarf circles, sir. Knows a lot of influential people. So do I, said Ponder. Actually, I am one, he wailed. "'But I had to do the training myself yesterday, "'and I couldn't remember all of the things Mr. Nutt comes up with, "'so I had them running on the spot, which I don't think is very helpful.' "'There's something going bad,' said Trev. "'I know about this city. "'I'll go and check a few things out. "'It's not as if you really need me.' "'I do,' said Juliet. "'Trev hesitated, but Nutt had shown him how to do this. "'He extended a hand and blew her a kiss as he went through the door. 
Did you see that? said Julia. He blew me. Glenda looked at Pepe, whose eyes were turned up so far in his head that she could see the whites, although they were red. A short while later, when most of the UU squad headed for the hippo with Glenda and Juliet trailing after them like camp followers, half a dozen watchmen appeared from the various places that they had selected for a quiet smoke and fell in after them, trying to make it look as if they all just happened to be strolling in the same direction. Trev was right, Glenda thought. It is going bad. Trev had not gone very far when his street sense told him he was being followed. He jinked in and out of a few alleys and waited at the next corner to confront the follower. The follower who wasn't there. The alley behind him was empty all the way to the last street. He realised this at the same time as someone pressed what definitely felt like a knife to his neck. "'Call this takes me back, and so it does,' said a voice. "'I reckon I can still remember every back alley in this place.' "'I know you. It's Pepe, isn't it? You're a dwarf,' said Trev, trying not to turn round. "'Sort of a dwarf,' said Pepe. "'But I don't have no argument with you, do I?' said Trev. Something small and shiny appeared on the edge of Trev's vision. "'Sample piece of moon-silver,' said Pepe's voice. "'I could do more damage with a broken champagne bottle, and I have, believe you me. "'I wouldn't threaten a bloke like you with a knife. "'Not with that little girl doting on you like she is.' "'She seems very happy with you, and I'd like to keep her happy.' "'Something's going down on the street,' said Trev. "'What, the whole street sounds like fun?' "'Something's gone wrong, hasn't it?' said Trev. "'Only now did Pepe enter his field of view. "'Not really my problem at all,' he said. "'But there are some kinds of people I just don't like. "'I've seen too many of them, bullies and bastards.' If you want to learn athletics very quickly, be born around here with a talent for design and maybe a few other little preferences. Lord Vetinari has got it all wrong. He thought he could take on the football and it's not working. It's not like the Thieves' Guild, see. He had it easy with the Thieves' Guild. That's because the Thieves' Guild is organised. Football ain't organised. Just because he's won over the captains don't mean that everyone's going to meekly get into line after them. There was fights all over the place last night. Your chums with their shiny new football and their shiny new jerseys are going to get creamed tomorrow. No, worse than creamed, cheesed. I thought you were just someone who made clothes, said Trev. Just someone who made clothes? Just someone? I am not anyone. I am Pepe. And I don't make clothes, I create gorgeous works of art that just happen to require a body to show them off, as they should be seen. Tailors and dressmakers make clothes. I forge history. Have you heard about micromail? Gotcha, yep, said Trev. Good, said Pepe. Now, what have you heard about micromail? Well, it doesn't chafe. It's got one or two other little secrets too, said Pepe. Anyway, I can't say I've got any time for wizards myself. Snooty lot. But it's not going to be a game out there tomorrow. It's going to be a war. Do you know a bloke called Andy? Andy Shank? Trev's heart sank. What's he got to do with it? I just heard the name, but I reckon I know the type. Lord Vetinari has done what he wanted. He's broken the football, but that's leaving a lot of sharp bits, if you get my meaning. The watch will be there tomorrow, 
said Trev. What's this? What's this? A street face like you being glad that the watch is going to be anywhere? There'll be a lot of people watching. Yeah, won't that be fun, said Pepe. And, you know, there's people in this city that would watch a beheading and hold their kiddies up for a better view. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm not going to give you an edge. The last thing you'll want to see tomorrow is an edge. I'll give you something that's much better than an edge. After all, you're Dave Likely's lad. I'm not playing, said Trev. I promised me old mum. You promised your old mum, said Pepe. There wasn't even any attempt to hide the disdain. And you think that makes any difference, do you? You've got a star in your hand, lad. You'll play all right, so I'll tell you what I'll do. You come along and see me round the back entrance of Shatter. Sorry about that. It sounds better in dwarfish. And kick on the door around about midnight. You can bring a chum with you if you like, but you'd better bloody well come. Why do I have to kick the door, said Trev? Because you'll have a bottle of best brandy in each hand. Don't thank me. I'm not doing it for you. I'm protecting my investment, and on the way, that means protecting yours as well. Off you go, boy. You're late for training. And me? I'm a sodding genius. Trev noticed more watchmen around as he headed onwards. They could be absolute bastards if they felt like it, but Sam Vimes had no use for coppers that couldn't read the streets. The watch was jumpy. Carter used to live in his mum's cellar until she rented it out to a family of dwarfs, and now he lived in the attic, which baked in the summer and froze in the winter. Carter survived because the walls were insulated with copies of Bows and Ammo, Backstreet Pins, Stanley Howler's Stamp Monthly, Giggles, Girls and Garters, Golem Spotter Weekly and Fretwork Today. These were only the top layer. In self-defence against the elements, he glued old copies over the larger cracks and holes in the roof. As far as Trev knew, Carter had never persevered beyond a week with any of the hobbies indicated by his rather embarrassing library, except possibly the one notoriously associated with the centrefolds of Giggles, Girls and Garters. Mrs. Carter opened the door to him and indicated the stairs with all the hearty welcome and hospitality that mothers extend to their son's no-good street friends. "'He's been ill!' she announced, as if it were a matter of interest rather than concern. This turned out to be an understatement. One of Carter's eyes was a technicolour mess, and there was a livid scar on his face. It took some time for Trev to find this out, because Carter kept telling him to go away. But since the ramshackle door was held shut with a piece of string, the application of Trev's shoulder had seen to that at least. Trev stared at the boy, who shrank back into his unspeakably dreadful bed as if he was expecting to be hit. He didn't like Carter. No one liked Carter. It was impossible. Even Mrs. Carter, who in theory at least should entertain some lukewarm affability to her son, didn't like Carter. He was fundamentally unlikable. It was a sad thing to have to say, but Carter, farting or otherwise, was a wonderful example of charisma. He could be fine for a day or two, and then some utterly stupid comment or off-key joke or entirely inappropriate action would break the spell. But Trev put up with him, seeing in him, perhaps, what Trev might have been had he not been, in fact, Trev. Maybe there was a bit of Carter the Farter in every bloke at some time in his life, he had thought, but with Carter it wasn't just a bit, it was everything. What happened? 
Trev said. Nothing. This is Trev. I know about nothing happening. You need to get to the hospital with that. It's worse than it looks, Carter moaned. Trev cracked. Are you bloody stupid? That cuts a quarter of an inch from your eye. It was my fault, Carter protested. I upset Andy. Yeah, I can see where that had been your fault, Trev said. Where were you last night? said Carter. You wouldn't believe me. Well, it was a bloody war, that's what it was. I found it necessary to spend a little time down the lat. There was fighting, wasn't there? The clubs have signed up to this new football and some people ain't happy. Trev said, Andy? and looked at the livid, oozing scar again. Yep, that looked like Andy being unhappy. It was hard to feel sorry for someone as basically unlikable as Carter, but just because he had been born with kick-me-up-the-arse tattooed onto his soul was no reason for doing it. Not to Carter. That was like pulling wings off flies. Not just Andy, said Carter. There's Tosha Atkinson and Jimmy the Spoon and Spanner. Spanner, said Trev, and Mrs Atkinson. Mrs Atkinson and Willie Piltdown, Harry Capstick and the Brisket Boys. Them? But we ate them. Andy ate them. They ate Andy. One foot on their turf and you get sent home in a sack. Well, you know what they say, said Carter. My enemy's enemy is my enemy. I think you got that wrong, said Trev, but I know what you mean. Trev stared at nothing, utterly aghast. The subjects of that litany of names were faces, hugely influential in the world of the teams, and, more importantly, among the supporters. They owned the shove. Pepe had been right. Veterinari thought the captains were in charge, and the captains were not in charge. The shove was in charge, and the faces ran the shove. One other reason that you could call them faces was that crude drawings of them appeared on watch posters, with hopeful messages asking people to let the watch know if said person had been seen around and about. There's going to be a team put together for tomorrow, and they'll try to get as many of them in as possible, Carter volunteered. Yeah, I heard. They're going to show Veterinari what they think of his new football. I didn't hear the name of the stollops there, Trev said. I hear their dad's got them doing choir practice every night, said Carter. The captains did sign up, said Trev, so it'll look bad for them. But how much do you think Andy and his little chums care about that? He leaned forward. Veterinari's got the watch, though, hasn't he? And you know about the watch. OK, so there's some decent bastards among them when you get them by themselves. But if it all goes wahoonie-shaped, they've got big, big sticks and big, big trolls, and they've not got to bother too much about who they hit, because they're the watch, which means it's all legal. And if you get them really pissed off, they'll add a charge of damaging their truncheons with your face. And talking of faces, exactly how come you're a quarter inch away from being a candidate for a white stick? I told Andy I didn't think it was a good idea, said Carter. Trev couldn't hide his surprise. Even that much bravery was alien to Carter. Well, as it happens, it might be a blessing in disguise. You just stay here in bed and you won't end up stuck between the old Sam and Andy. He stopped because of a rustling noise. Since Carter glued pages of his used magazines to the walls with flour and water paste, the attic was home to some quite well-fed mice. And for some reason, one of them had just gnawed its way to freedom via the chest of last year's Miss April, thus giving her a third nipple, which was, in fact, staring at Trev and wobbling. It was a sight to put anyone off their tea. "'What are you going to do?' said Carter. "'Anything I can,' said Trev. 
You know Andy's out to get you. You and that weird bloke. I'm not afraid of Andy, said Trev. As a statement, this was entirely true. He was not frightened of Andy. He was mortally terrified to his boots and back again, with a visceral fear that dripped off his ribs like melting snow. Everyone's afraid of Andy, Trev, if they're smart, said Carter. Hey, fartmeister, I'm Trevor Lightly. I think you're going to need a lot more than that.